Good morning. It is good to see you. If you would, take your Bible and have it handy. I'm not going to mention where we are yet, but I think it's probably up in front of you, isn't it? So you can go ahead and look. Well, I'm going to ask you a question as we start. Um, you know I'm a professor, and I like to give quizzes. And uh, Charles Loder used to be my grader, and he knows I like quizzes. And so uh, I'm going to give uh, you all a quiz here. And here it goes. I want you to think of what is your favorite book of the Bible. What is your favorite book of the Bible? First book that comes to mind. Favorite book in the Bible. And then I want you to turn to your neighbor and share with your neighbor what is your favorite book in the Bible. Go ahead and do that. I'm assuming you read the Bible occasionally, right? So there you go. What's your favorite book in the Bible? Now... It's time for grading, and so here we go. How many of you said that your favorite book in the Bible is an Old Testament book? Okay, I'm just wanting to find out who the true elect are um, in the church right off, the, you know, right as I start off here, so that's good to know. And um, so, you know, um, the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible, um, I do affirm the New Testament. It's helpful, um, but, uh, but you might want to dip into Jesus' Bible as well, and uh, there are a lot of good things there, and we're going to do that. We're going to look today in your second favorite book in the Bible, Zephaniah, okay? So if you will take your Bible and look to the book of Zephaniah, we're looking in chapter 3, and I have up here, I sent in 9 through 20, and as I continue looking at it, I decided to start at 8, so please forgive me, okay? So I, I added another verse that we're going to look at this morning. But we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Now, as you're looking that up, Zephaniah lived during a time when the people of God had really rebelled against God, turned completely away from him. They were self-consumed. They ignored God's word, and God gave Zephaniah a message to bring to his people. And this message focused on imminent judgment, catastrophic judgment that would be a world event. And it's often referred to in other places in the Bible, and Zephaniah refers to it as this as well, the day of the Lord. And when we think about the day of the Lord in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was a day that was understood to be in the near future, but at the same time, something that would be ultimately at the end time. And so there are pictures of it that the prophets speak of, Zephaniah and Amos and others, where there is a nearness to the day of the Lord. But always in mind, as you look at these prophets, they understand that the nearness of the day of the Lord is really a picture of what is going to come that will be much greater, that will be a world event. And Zephaniah, in his book, at the beginning of this book, speaks to these things. And while these world events and Zephaniah's time would foreshadow the day of the Lord for all the nations, he doesn't end there, though, because he also talks about what will happen regarding the people of God at the time of the day of the Lord. And when we look in the Bible, the day of the Lord, many things we can say about it, but there are two things we must always remember about the day of the Lord. First of all, the day of the Lord, once again, will be a day when God once and for all subdues his enemies, and it is a day of justice that he will execute upon all of the nations all over the world. That's one. But the second thing we need to remember about the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord will be a day of salvation as well. It will be a day when the Lord brings out his people and removes the sin in this world and makes his people what he intended to make them all along, all along 
that is like his son, Jesus Christ. It will be a wonderful day when we will experience the trueness of salvation, the completion of it. We realize this. I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school that we were taught about salvation, the three parts of salvation, and that I was saved, I'm being saved, and that I will be saved. And we understand that, that uh, it is, I was saved, that is justification, I am being saved, that is sanctification, and I will be saved, glorification. And we have all of these understandings in the scripture of salvation. And when we look at the end of, of Zephaniah's message, it is really talking about that glorification, that we will be saved. And he looks to that time that is coming in the future. So after describing with great detail the catastrophic judgment that will be a world event brought by God on all nations, he turns his attention to the salvation of believers and what we will experience at the end time. With that being said, let's, let's look at Zephaniah 3 and let's begin reading with verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then... I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior, he will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Well, as we look at this passage, I'd like you to think about six words that we're going to Look at six words that tie to the message of this passage in Zephaniah. And here they are. Number one, patience. Number two, purity. Number three, presence. Number four, peace. Number five, praise. And number six, promise. Patience, purity, presence, peace, praise. And promise. And so as we look, look at verse 8 again. It begins, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. 
I told you I went to Sunday school as a kid. In fact, I'm a, according to my uncle, I'm a sixth-generation Southern Baptist minister. If you do the math on that, that means we were really Southern Baptists before there was even a Southern Baptist convention, so I don't know how that works out. But um, a lot of preachers in my family, that's, that's for sure. And I've been in Sunday school, I've been in church my entire life. I, I tell you what, my mom says I was born on a Thursday. She had me in church on Sunday, and I was a month late. They don't let them go a month late anymore, but I'm sure I didn't miss many in those 10 months before that either. I just had a better place to sit um, while that was going on. But as I grew up in Sunday school, I remember my Sunday school teachers always saying this. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what's it there for? And so the question is, what's it there for? It is referring back to all that Zephaniah has been preaching about the devastating judgment that is going to come. So based upon God's judgment on the nations and God's devouring and clearing out the wicked on this earth, in light of that, he says, we need to wait on him. We need to wait on the Lord. And how are people to wait on the Lord? How are the people of God to wait on the Lord? We need to wait expectantly. Expectantly. The idea of waiting on the Lord is expecting him to act. It is expecting him to take action. There's an expectancy to it. We are looking forward to it. I'm reminded of this uh, idea with my daughter-in-law. My wife is not uh, with me today, but um, she is with my son's family because uh, his wife just gave birth to our second grandson Friday. And so I don't know why she would rather be with her grandchildren than with me, but that's the case. And next week, by the way, her mom uh, got a home, uh, a house in Florida and invited her to come visit her. So you, you may see my wife sometime this summer, okay? But she's, she's having a good time right now. But um, when a woman is pregnant, we often use the word description saying she's expecting. It's not a, a word that we're saying, well, there might be a baby. No, no. When we say that she's expecting, there is a baby, and it is coming. And it is coming, again, on its own time, is it not? But it's coming. It's not a question whether it's going to come. It's really a question of when it's going to come, but it will be coming. That's the idea here of waiting on the Lord. It is recognizing that these things are going to happen. It will be in his timing, in his way, but it's going to happen. And so we need to wait expectantly. We need to realize this is going to happen regardless. There's nothing anybody can do about it to bring it forward quicker or to stop it from happening or slow it down because it's going to happen and it's going to happen in God's timing. Now, since my wife isn't here, I'm going to share a story that she normally doesn't like me to share, but that's okay. She's not here. And you can tell her that this week we are celebrating our 34th anniversary, and so she doesn't care anyhow. She doesn't listen to me. It doesn't move her. She's used to me now. We dated five and a half years before that. There's nothing I do that she's shocked by anymore, so it really doesn't matter. So I'll tell you this, and she'll say, well... Whatever, you did it again, but that's it, you know, so it's good. So, so we're fine with that. But I remember when our second son was born, uh, he, our first son, by the way, uh, he, he was kind of tiny, had a tiny head, and I mean, he just kind of slid out, you know, I mean, that's just how it was. It just, there he was, and, and he was a little green, but the, besides that, it was fine, okay? Um, but the next one, he had like the head of a basketball, and when he was coming, um, he, uh, he got stuck um, in the passageway. His head got stuck. And it was tough. And my wife, she was in a lot of pain. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, how much you were told, but I pastored three churches before um, going to Southern Seminary. 
And uh, one of the things I've never understood is why God would call me to Southern Seminary because I was so wonderful at pastoral care. I'm such a compassionate, sensitive, thoughtful person. And I'll give you an example of that with my wife. So she's there, I'm standing next to her and looking down at her, and she is just in massive pain, sweat all over. She really bad, she really did. But anyhow, um, as, as she's going through all this, she looks up at me and she says, I don't think I can do this. And I looked down at her and I said, well, honey, I think we're committed at this point. I think, I think it's gonna happen. So you see my, my pastoral care, my bedside manner, I am the one to go to. I don't know why my son's growing up, whenever there's a problem, they always yelled for mom, they never, even if I was in the same room, mom, you know, I don't know why. But um, the point is, the Lord is committed to this. It is going to happen. And so we wait expectantly for it. We're looking for it. We, we know it's going to happen. It will be on his good time. Because God is committed to carrying out his judgment and justice on the wicked. He will carry out his justice on the wicked. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, he's an Old Testament guy, he's talking about judgment, he's talking about justice, this is what they do. Just before you do that, I do take a look at the New Testament occasionally. I, I told you, I, I endorse it. And it's interesting, when you talk about judgment, when was the greatest act of God's judgment ever brought forth? I will argue it was at Calvary on Jesus Christ. But I will tell you this, I've read the end of the story in Revelation, it doesn't look like it's going to be a good picture then either. Not for the world anyhow. And so this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a God thing. This is who God is. God is a just God and he will punish sin. And we can expect him to do that in his good time. And it's important that we recognize that. But we also not only wait expectantly, but I said the first word is patient. We need to wait patiently. Do any of you struggle with being patient? I'm sure no one here struggles with being patient. No, you might be like the little boy who prayed, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. And that's, that's how we are sometimes. It's tough to be patient, but we need to be patient. And the reason we need to be patient is we need to be patient, first of all, because God is patient. Aren't you glad God is patient with us? Aren't you glad that God shows his patience and calls us to, to follow him, and he helps us with that by giving us his Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, what? Patience, an important aspect of being the people of God, an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And it is patience with others, but first and foremost, it's patience with God. Patiently waiting for God to work in his good time. You see, patience means trusting in God's wisdom. And as I think about God's wisdom, there are a lot of things that we could say about God's wisdom, but patience in God means trusting in his wisdom. What is this? Wisdom, when it comes to God, is that God knows what is right, does what is right, does what is right at the right time to the right extent. That is who he is. He knows what is right. He does what is right. He does it at the right time, in the right way, to the right extent. And so trusting in God and being patient with God is trusting in his timing. It means I trust your wisdom that you do know what is right, you always do what is right, and you always do it at the right time, in the right way, to the right extent. And it is trusting in this when we think about being patient with God. You see, God sees the wickedness in this world, and he is going to bring the wicked to justice. And it is right for the people of God 
to long for God's justice. It is right for us to want God to do what is just in this world. I think about David in Psalm 37, verses 7 and following. He says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. So God will deal with the wicked, and we need to wait patiently for that. That is what he's saying here. We need to wait. And it's interesting, God's mercy will prevail. We need to wait because God's mercy will prevail for those who trust in him. No matter how dark things may be in your life or in this world right now, God is going to make things right and his mercy and compassion will prevail for his people. I go on in Psalm 37 and David says in verse 11 and then verse 34, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off, you will see it. It's interesting. He says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, which brings me to one more thing we need to think about when we think about waiting on the Lord. We need to wait expectantly. We need to wait patiently. We need to wait faithfully. We need to wait, as he says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. I think of an old song I grew up singing when I was a kid goes like this, O land of rest, for thee I sigh. When will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home? We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home expectantly, patiently, faithfully, waiting on the Lord because he will do what is right because he knows what is right and he will do it in the right way at the right time to the right extent and we can trust in that. Patience, the next word is purity. Look at verse 9. For then I will give the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then look at verse 13. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Note this. The Lord will give people from every nation purified lips. In the Bible, unclean lips indicates an unclean heart, a sinful heart. So to have purified lips, it really is best understood when we think about the prophet Isaiah, when his lips were touched in a vision. And there he was told, your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That is what this is a picture of. The Lord will give us, his people, those of us who are believers, purified lips. Our guilt will be taken away, our sin forgiven, and he will cleanse us and purge us from our sin. And he says in verses 11, the last part of 11 and verse 12, you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. It's interesting because in Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus spoke these words. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
If you look in the New Testament, of course, it was originally written in Greek. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the Greek translation called the Septuagint, when it translates this verse here that we just read, it uses the same two words that Jesus used to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, that says where he says, I am gentle and lowly. So what is he saying here? What he is saying, is, Zephaniah is saying that God is going to make us gentle and lowly. God is going to make us like Christ. And that day is coming. Dane Ortland, speaking of this, wrote these words, gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we were asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. That is who he is, and that is what he is going to make us someday. God stated in Zephaniah's day that he's going to take his people and he's going to transform them from the sinful, self-centered, arrogant people that we were and he is going to make us like Christ. And he is going to honor us by making us like Christ, gentle and lowly. That is the promise to the people of God. Why would the Lord do this? Again, look at verse 9. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia my worshipers my dispersed ones will bring my offerings in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you rebelled against me God will make us like Christ and we will be completely like Christ for one purpose it is so that we might call upon him and serve him and worship him. He will make us like the Son. When we look at Jesus Christ when he was on this earth, his meat, his food was to do what? The will of his Father. And there's coming a day when we will be made like him. And it will be who we are that we will be a people that what we will be about, we will be about one thing, shoulder to shoulder, together as the people of God, calling upon his name, serving him, worshiping him. That is what he's going to do with his people. And it's interesting, Paul wrote in Romans 7, 19, he says, the good I desire to do, I do not do, but the evil I do not want is what I do. That's us today. That's who we are. Sometimes the Christian life, let's just be, let's just be completely honest. It's a frustrating life, isn't it? It's frustrating in this way. Because we have in us the Spirit of God and we so desire to be like Jesus. We so desire to obey him and honor him and glorify him with our lives. And yet, we fall short of that all too often, don't we? And it's frustrating. The day is coming when that frustration will be as if it never existed. When we will be made like Christ, gentle and lowly, and there will be 
only purified lips on the people of God. And we will come together shoulder to shoulder and glorify him as we serve him and worship him. Well, patience, purity. The next word is presence. Notice verse 15 through 17. Look at these phrases here. It says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And then going down, it again says, the Lord your God is in your midst. One of the things you may not know about me is I train dogs. I train dogs to be therapy dogs. Um, not service dogs, but therapy dogs. In fact, before COVID hit, um, I would go to the University of Louisville Hospital um, at least twice a month, and I would visit the NICU, I would uh, go to the psych ward, and then I would make uh, rounds to just the uh, general areas as well. And my dog, uh, Chloe, um, who is a flat-coated retriever, um, would go with me, and um, last June, um, she got a new sister, and her name is Gracie, and Gracie, during the COVID, um, I trained her and certified her, and so whenever we can get back in, um, I've got two of them ready to go. So I trained these, but uh, last year, um, the dogs in our house are a different population because last year, two of our dogs died. In 2020, in April, um, our dog, uh, Tyson, um, had cancer, and he died, and then in October, our dog, um, Gracie, or I'm sorry, Macy, we have Macy, Chloe, and Gracie, but uh, Macy um, had a brain tumor, and she died as well. These were Australian shepherds. I have now flat-coated retrievers, but my Australian shepherds, um, I could never take these two to the hospital. Um, Tyson, when we got him, um, he was named, yes, after the boxer, Mike Tyson. And uh, the reason he was is because uh, we had a cat at that time. And when he came in, she would swipe at him and he would duck like this. And my son said, he looks like T a Tyson. Said, so there we go. So he named him Tyson. What we did not know that that was prophetic because just like Mike Tyson bites, um, so, so did uh, Tyson. And he bit at least five or six people. Now, uh, one of them was an in-law. We're overlooking that one. Um, I'm on the fence about that one. But, uh, you know, um, he was just very protective. Um, my what happened with my mother-in-law, my, my mom stayed with us for nine years after my dad passed away. She had a lot of health problems, and, and my wife took care of her. Um, she had dialysis five days a week, three hours a day, just a lot of things that um, my wife did with her. But anyhow, my sister-in-law were walking downstairs, and... My sister-in-law kind of had her like this, and they were going down, and my mom kind of did a little stumble like this. And when she did, my sister-in-law grabbed her. And Tyson's like, no, you're not. You're not. You don't grab her. And she, she got bit. He always had one target, always the fleshy back inside. It was his favorite place to go for, and that's where he bit people. Um, but, and she never uh, forgave Tyson, um, but, you know. Tyson really wasn't concerned, I don't think. Tyson had about five friends. Part of his friends was, I mentioned, Chloe. Chloe was a puppy. She's the one that's a therapy dog with me now. And we got her. It's just a little thing, 15 weeks. And when she came into the house, he took her in because she was one of us. And so he's very protective. He had about five friends, all of my family except one who was my, best, my son's best friend, who went with them to pick Tyson up when he was a pup. So only about five people. And my point is this. He was protective of all of us. And when they went outside, Chloe, this little puppy, she would run around out there without a care in the world because he would go around the border of our, our yard and he'd keep an eye on anyone. And in fact, Chloe got through our invisible fence. We have an electric fence, very painful. She went through it. Tyson, knowing that that electric fence was there, went through it with her, and when I found them, he was guarding her, um, watching over her. He was willing to take that pain to watch out for her. But as I said, Tyson died last year, 13 and a half years old, with cancer. This little puppy, Chloe, 
who spent the first three years of her life without a care in the world when she went outside, you know what she does now? She's doing it this morning. I put her out there. She sees anything that moves, and she starts barking and is scared to death. What happened? Her protector, who was always with her, isn't with her anymore. And this little dog that had no care in the world, now I have to keep an eye, I have to look out, make sure that she's not going crazy barking and let her know I'm around because she's afraid because she no longer has Tyson present with her. You say, where are you going with all this? If a dog can have confidence and peace because of another dog, then what's that say about us when we belong to God as God's people? Because he is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. What reason, because of God's presence, what reason do we have to be anxious? Which brings me to the next word, peace. Because God is in their midst. Look in verse 13. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Why? Because God is in their midst. God is with them. Let me tell you, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit dwells in you and he is with you now. He is with us. And we should be, of all people on this earth, a people who are a peaceful people, at peace with one another, at peace with this world, at peace with God, because we have the peace of God and we have his presence in us. What has the Lord done? How is it that we have peace with God? Notice this in verse 15. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. There's no more disaster to fear. He says, do not be afraid. Do not let your hands fall limp. Why? Because he is with us. And not only is he with us, he has taken care of our sin problem there is no more condemnation coming toward us. We have been made clean by the work of the Lord God through his son, Jesus Christ. John wrote in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he, Christ, appeared to take away sins. And then Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so he has come to remove our sins and he has come to take on our sins so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So why are we afraid? When he the one, the only one that we would sh should have any fear toward. He has forgiven us. He has taken our guilt and taken it upon himself and bore the penalty for our sin, and we are free from that. We are no longer under any condemnation because God has removed that in Christ Jesus. This is what he has done. But what will he do? Look at verse 17. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. It's interesting this phrase here, he will be quiet in his love. Because it could be the picture of what we think of when we visualize a mother um, holding a, a child and gently calming that child. I saw the first pictures I saw of uh, my new grandson, um, JT is what we're calling him. That's what I'm calling him. As they say he's justice, but he's JT. Um, anyhow, th th that's another issue. Um, but anyhow, 
um, JT was being held by his mother there, and it was a wonderful picture. Just a picture of calm, big old brown eyes looking up and just calm and comfort with his mother there, the quietness of her love as she was holding him. Now, this could be a picture of that, of the comfort we have. But the idea of being quiet in his love, I'll tell you what it makes me think of. It makes me think of an incident in Jesus' life when the religious leaders bring this woman to him who's been found in the act of adultery. And he says to the crowd, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead and do it. And he begins writing in the dirt, and they stand there, and one by one, they all leave. And it's just Jesus and the woman there. And it's interesting, after all the accusers left, Jesus asked her, where are your, your accusers? Who has condemned you now? And she answers, no one. And you know what he says? Neither do I condemn you. Quiet in his love. No more finger pointing, no more accusations, because we're, we're free from sin. We are free from the guilt of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's quiet in his love. It would do us well to know that, wouldn't it? When we do blow it, we think we have this God who's pointing his finger down at us and wants to just ridicule us, and that's not who he is. I think about my grandson. Our, our, we only have two. Our oldest one, he's two and a half. He's a mess. He gets into things sometimes. Sometimes he does some things he shouldn't do. You know what I do when I look at him? I think there's nothing I could do or nothing he could do to make me love him any more than I love him right now. And when I see him doing something he shouldn't do, I say, okay, I know he's going to do that. He's going to need some help in this area. doesn't change anything about what I think about him at all. And you know what? When we sin, Jesus looks at us, and the love that I have for my grandson is nowhere near the love that our Lord has for you and for me. And he is not waiting to condemn us because there is no more condemnation. And we are free from that. And that is what he says he will do for his people through his prophet Zephaniah. The, la the, the next to last word is praise. Look at verses 19 and 20. And I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You may be thinking, this is the weirdest Father's Day sermon I have ever heard in my life. Maybe just the weirdest sermon you've ever heard in your life. But as I was preparing this message, it makes me think of my parents made me think of my dad. The word patience was the first word. You know, my dad taught me to be persistent, to be patient. Expect the best from the Lord. Don't expect the worst from him. Be patient. Be faithful. He's a good father. He loves you. Be patient and trust him. I think about my dad teaching me about right and wrong, purity. He wanted me to be pure. He wanted me to be a godly man. But he knew he couldn't make me godly. He could tell me what was right, but he couldn't make me do what was right. But what he did, he pointed me to the one who could change me and take this sinner and cleanse me of my sin and forgive me and someday make me like Christ. He pointed me to the Lord and what purity truly is. Presence. My dad was always just one call away. And uh, 
he was with me until he wasn't with me. He, uh, this July, it'll be 14 years that he has gone to be with the Lord. And uh, he taught me that there is one I could always lean on. He taught me that, that he was a man, but there's someone that's greater than my father. I was never closer to anyone except my wife, but never closer to any man in, in my whole life than my father. He was truly my dearest friend apart from my wife. And yet he taught me there's a better, there's an even dearer friend in Jesus Christ. Peace, when I was upset, he'd tell me to trust the Lord. Often he would rebuke me. You know, when we get anxious, sometimes we think we need to console people. Sometimes they just need a good rebuke. Because the point is that for us to be anxious is to be dishonoring to our God. It is to act as if I can't trust God. And that's wrong. And we need to get up out of our anxiety, out of our fears, and stand up tall because we are children of God. And we have no reason to fear in this world, in this world or the world beyond, because we belong to Jesus Christ. There's peace. Then praise. Well, when I was a kid, dad, and as an adult also, he would never um, brag on me straight to me. He never wanted me to get the big head, the big head that he had and gave to my grandson. But no, he didn't want me to get a big head. But here's what he would do. People would come up to me and say, hey, I heard you're doing such and such. I heard that this was going on in your life. I'm like, where'd you hear that? I didn't say anything. Oh, your dad told me. And what I found is he was talking about me to his friends and to others. And that was his way of praise. It says here that God will transform us from being outcasts, a broken people, worthy of rebuke, of shame, and he will turn us into a people that will be praised and honored. And that brings me to the last word here is promise. See, dad gave me a promise I could count on, and that is when he would fall short, there's one who would never fall short, and that is the Lord. And that I can always trust in the Lord through thick and thin, that he's always faithful to his promises, faithful for all eternity. Trusting in God's promises for the future gives us strength to stand in the present. Let me say it again. Trusting in God's promises for the future gives us strength to stand in the present. And God has made all these promises that we've looked at here. And it can give us strength if we'll believe. It will give us strength in the present. But also, trusting in God's promises for the future gives us a song to sing in the present. His promises for the future give us a song to sing in the present. Look at verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Jesus the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our sins, he took his seat above. He sits at God's right hand, till all his foes submit and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say, Rejoice. God has 
wonderful, amazing plans for the future, especially for the future of everyone who believes in him. Let it be that in this world that we live in that seems so uncertain, let's show this world that there is a certainty and that certainty is in the Lord God himself. And that we can trust in him and through our trust and faith be a light to this dark world to show them that there is a God who saves through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And let that be our message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the words that you gave to Zephaniah. We thank you that while we live in this world that we see so much turmoil, so many discouraging things at times, Lord, and you know. Lord, we thank you that you're in control and there's coming a day when you will make all things right. Your justice will be brought forth and shine its light over all the nations. And from every nation, you're calling out a people to yourself. And there is a day that you will come and we will see you and we will be made like Jesus. We will be made like Jesus when we see him face to face. And we will be made gentle and lowly like him. Father, until that day comes, let us shout for joy. Let us rejoice. Let us be the light you called us to be, that there is salvation, and that salvation is in one name, the name of Jesus. And may we be that light to share the gospel with others so that they might come to saving faith too. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.